Organic farming is steadily increasing. That's good. Pour parler d'agriculture et d'Europe à la jeunesse. Der Klimawandel erfasst immer weitere Teile der Welt. Farmers help us bring nature back and preserve biodiversity. Ceux qui sont dans le rouge s'en sortent quand ils font plus vert. La qualité dans ce pays, elle doit être là pour tous. There's a good-natured atmosphere here this Friday, April the 15th, in Halle near Brussels, in the procession of Flemish and Wallonian champions of sustainable agriculture. This is International Day of Peasant Struggles, and around 100 people have come to denounce land-grabbing by big retailers. As for me, I have another mission altogether. Because Russia's invasion of Ukraine has highlighted the dependence of European agriculture on these two countries. The numbers speak for themselves. Before February the 24th, the European Union imported 30% of the nitrogen fertilizers used in its crops from Russia. Ukraine delivered 30% of the sunflower meal and 9% of the corn destined for our livestock. With soaring prices and the risk of shortages, what is the impact of the war now on our agriculture? Should we be worried about our food security? This is our focus in this, our 16th edition of Food for Europe. The sun is shining here in Halle, and in the middle of the event, one of the pioneers of organic farming has made time for a few questions from me. With his long, flowing white hair, Philippe looks, looks a bit like a magician. He's a member of UNAB, the National Union of Belgian Agrobiologists. He's also a man with a generous dash of humour. I'm a farmer, breeder, in short, a peasant. I'm a young farmer of 70 years old. At his side, in black T-shirt and khaki trousers, a militant and evidently angry Flemish farmer. I'm Thijs Boulens, a farmer in the Gruntelach. I'm 36 years old and I belong to the Boeren Forum, a trade union organisation in Flanders. Together we follow the procession from a distance and discuss the consequences of the invasion of Ukraine by Russia on European agriculture in general and on their own activities in particular. The fact that every farmer currently active in Belgium is dependent on oil prices is a big problem. But organic farming is much less dependent because 60 or 70 percent of gas or fossil fuels in agriculture is in the production of synthetic manures and another 20 percent in the production of pesticides and herbicides. The organic sector doesn't depend on what comes from Ukraine. That's to say, we have always tried to distance ourselves from all the things that have brought conventional agriculture to its current impasses. The organic farms have tried to be self-sufficient in feed for all the animals on the farm and even for the farmers themselves. On organic farms, we use clover grass, and clover grass is definitely the stuff you need in your rotation to feed your soil and clean it of weeds. 
So for us, feed for our livestock is definitely the solution in our crop rotation. But it also means that the choice of truly sustainable agroecological and organic agriculture allows us to be much more resilient. And all the people who tell us it's not possible to produce enough to feed Europe, for example, they should know that even with the population density we have in Flanders, we can feed every Flemish person just from Flemish land. Very quickly, the discussion turns to the right to EU subsidies. We get 2,500 in grants annually. The big farmers in my region who grow monocultures that destroy the land, they tap 250,000 in subsidies a year. So if we talk about the land market, they, with their subsidies, buy up all the land that I would like to try to buy with the money saved by my parents. That is the reality of European Union subsidies. And that's why I'm so mad at them. They're giving public money to people who do a type of agriculture that no one wants to see. No cyclist wants to cycle past fields after field of potatoes, especially not on max spreading days. But still, we give public money to such producers and climate change has just kicked off. Poor, poor, poor little Europe. Well, I'm afraid. Seriously, I'm afraid for her. I leave the event with a feeling of unease. Is the model defended by these farmers not precisely the one that the European institutions are promoting, in particular for better resilience to crises? To answer this question, I contact Fabien Santini, specialist in the governance of agro-food markets in the European Commission. We meet in our studio. Hello, Fabian, and welcome to Food for Europe. Thank you very much. I'm glad to be with you. With the Russian invasion, Ukrainian exports have been disrupted and the grain harvest is threatened this year. Should we be worried about our food security? Ukraine is one of the major producer and exporter of cereals and oilseeds in the world. A lot of countries uh, in the Mediterranean area, in Africa, in the Middle East, are depending on Ukrainian wheat, but also uh, cereals and oilseeds for feed purpose. And even the EU is depending on the uh, Ukrainian uh, imports of maize, of uh, sunflower uh, meals, for example. But overall, the diversity of food systems in the EU, an incredible diversity of productions, allow, in fact, to uh, be confident that there will be no food shortage in the EU in the coming months. Our food systems will cope with this. Tice Bolins, an organic farmer, told us here just a few minutes ago, Europe is self-sufficient, Flanders is self-sufficient. Does that mean we should stop exporting our production to become self-sufficient in times of crisis? When product is missing, when prices are increasing, and that's the situation where we are, the worst thing to do is to add tension by export restrictions. It's creating chaos, it's creating uncertainty for everybody and more speculative movement. In the EU, we have the single market with rules and we have ways to try to tell the member states not to adopt uh, these kind of measures. At the international level, There's a similar reasoning. In times of tensions, you should not drop the main tool to alleviate the tensions, which is trade. So, to understand what's at stake in the current context on the agricultural market, I spoke with Philippe Mitko, president of COSERAL, the European Cereal and Oilseed Trade Association. Hello, Philippe Mitko. Hello. What is the current situation in the grain and oilseed market? 
the prices of the grain have now reached uh, levels never seen uh, previously in history. Before the conflict, we were looking at Ukraine exporting something like 25 million tons of milling wheat and feed wheat on the global market, which represents uh, 13% of uh, the global trade. 32 million tons of, of maize, which is about 16% of the global market, and 6 million tons of barley, which is 18% of the global market. After February the 25th, with the ports being blocked by authorities and eventually military actions, exporting companies were in a situation where it was impossible to deliver and honor their contracts and their commitments towards their customers. And for some of them, they had to replace the goods with other origins or other ports. So that means that we had to buy the goods a second time. For us, the uh, agri-commodity traders, we are facing huge and massive losses with this story. We are facing extra uh, logistic costs. Exporting companies have started to find solutions to export all those grains via uh, railways, transportation, but we are facing enormous difficulties looking at the total capacities that we are going to be able to export from Ukraine. This is not going to be more than 10%, the best case scenario, as opposed to the maritime export channel. So it's still something, but there are huge quantities that are going to be missing on the market. Does that mean we risk running out of cereal in Europe? So um, we will not see any food or grain shortage in EU because uh, we do not depend so much on imports for grains. But this price increase is getting up to the consumer. It's different for those countries that are depending on Ukraine for their food supplies and mainly wheat. First, Egypt. Also, Turkey is a very important buyer uh, because, of course, it's very close to Ukraine. Uh, but we also have to mention Tunisia, Libya. Uh, and a little bit further, Pakistan, Bangladesh, Indonesia, and the biggest one is China. China buys something like 15 million tons of grains out of Ukraine. So when we talk about food security, no problem with the EU, but certainly a very big question mark for those importing countries uh, in Middle East, North Africa, and uh, Asia. Thank you very much indeed, Philippe Mitko. So does this surge in grain and oilseed prices benefit farmers? I put the question to Max Schulman, a Finnish farmer who specialises in the issue with the MKT, the National Union of Agricultural Producers and Forest Owners, and COPA, the Committee of Professional Agricultural Organisations of the European Union. Higher grain prices will help, but at the same time energy prices are going up, and through that fertilisers, all the work on the fields are done using tractors or big machinery and they need their own fuel. Up in the northern part of Europe, you also have to dry everything that you harvest. So the grain has to be dried and there also goes energy. So yes, for sure, it is uh, positive to see that the grain prices has been following the energy prices, but it is not so that we would say that it's like winning the lottery. No, it is not. You're a farmer in Finland which neighbours Russia. Does your proximity with Russia influence your way of working? And if so, how? Let's say like this, we are fairly used to be up in the north, more or less an island. 
you know, so we have sea on two sides and then we have the long Russian border on the east side. So we are fairly disconnected from main Europe. So we have been always putting a lot of effort into our own production. We are self-sufficient. We are even an exporting country. And we do also have our own security stocks that can last for one year. It's not only for the food and for feed, but it's also for seeds. So we have always enough seeds so that we can plant the next year's crop, not only because of political situation, but also because we are so far up north and we are quite used to have once every 10 years a full crop failure. But for sure, we are following the situation very closely. Thank you very much, Max Schulman. Fabian Santini, there is no risk of shortage in Europe. We've understood this well. But all our guests are warning about soaring food prices and therefore a drop in household purchasing power. Purchasing power which crystallises tensions, particularly in France, as we saw during the presidential election. In fact, the Russian invasion of Ukraine adds up to a pre-existing phenomenon, which was the rise of energy prices. And when energy prices increase, this means more costs for the farmers because they use energy quite intensively to eat a glass house, to put fuel in their tractors or in their combined harvesters, but also because fertilizers are heavily correlated to the price of gas and energy. And when there's a shock on cost of production, there's a price transmission towards the consumer, so there will be a shock of prices also for the consumers. So this shock, how do you intend to absorb it? Farmers affected deserve to receive some financial support, and that's what we are foreseeing on a short-term basis by mobilizing the crisis reserve for the first time ever, up to an amount of support of 500 million euros that the member states can triple with their uh, contributions. And in addition, we also adopted a temporary stated framework for uh, supporting farmers, which is similar to the one adopted at the times of COVID, which gives you a sense of the importance of the shock. There's another measure, which is not financial, allowing uh, the highest possible level of production to anticipate a decrease of the production in Ukraine. We have authorized for the year 2022 farmers to uh, cultivate crops for food and feed purpose on the ecological focus areas. This recultivation of fallow land is controversial. At the beginning of April, a Belgian collective bringing together environmental and academic organisations published an article entitled Biodiversity is Vital for Our Food Security. I spoke with two of its authors. Here's what they have to say. Emmanuel Béguin, you're head of agricultural policy in the Environmental Defence Association at Agora. We're also online with Nicolas Dendonker, you are a professor and researcher in geography at the University of Namur. Hello and welcome to you both to Food for Europe. Hi, Paul. Merci. So, Emmanuel Béguin, you initiated this collective. Why would it be a bad idea to cultivate fallow land? The Commission makes two assumptions. The first is that cultivating fallow land will help produce a lot more. And the second is that by producing more staple food, we will reduce the price of these foods which is twice not the case. Fallow land are very marginal lands, not good for production. Even if the fallows did uh, help produce a lot more crops, this would not have an impact on prices. And for you, Nicolas Dendonka? There is no need to produce more. The first need is to produce differently. We don't have a major problem of production, but more a problem of distribution, of access, of use. 
Around two-thirds of our cereals in Europe are destined either for agrofuels or for livestock feed. So the issue is more to produce for us humans directly. You say it yourself, we have to produce to feed ourselves. What role does biodiversity then play at this level? First, all food comes from biodiversity. Uh, there is a diversity of soil life, which contributes uh, to structuring the soil and decomposing organic matter, diversity of seeds and animal breeds. Uh, we also need a diversity of pollinating insects to have better pollination. And biodiversity also works at the landscape level, since hedges, flora or wooded strips serve as habitat for fauna, which regulate pest populations. And finally, diversity offers this capacity to adapt to uh, climatic shocks, to diseases, to economic shocks. At the end of the Second World War, production-focused agriculture ensured for decades a famine-free Europe. Are we all wrong today? We had this uh, magical solution that was uh, chemical fertilizers that could help make sure we can produce a lot in a very short time without risk. However, this system is reaching its limit. So either we hide our heads in the sands and we continue subsidizing uh, animal husbandry systems that are no longer sustainable, or we wonder how do we support these farmers to adapt their practices to our planet boundaries. Nicolas Dendonker, what alternative solutions can we envisage to guarantee our food security at the present time? If we reduce by one third the quantity of cereals that we use to feed livestock, that would make it possible to compensate at once for the expected collapse of Ukrainian uh, cereal and oilseed exports. A second alternative in parallel is to start a protein transition by substituting part of the animal proteins by plant proteins. And what we need to do is to put back legumes in the rotations. Legumes are nitrogen-fixing plants. Um, this would allow us to reduce our dependence on chemical fertilizers. And finally, we need to reduce our food waste. For example, the current waste of wheat in Europe is equivalent to half of Ukraine's wheat exports. As we can see, energy prices are soaring, and with them the price of chemical fertilisers and potash. Suddenly, conventional agriculture in Europe feels itself hit hard by the Russian invasion of Ukraine. How can we limit the damage to farmers and also prevent the consequences for consumers in terms of prices in particular? I actually see this increase in energy prices as an opportunity because the number one issue that agriculture is facing now is to move away from fossil fuels. Globally, agriculture largely contributes to greenhouse gases emissions, causing climate disruption, which further causes agricultural disruption. So what we need is agroecological systems which are diversified, autonomous, in short circuits, socially just. In terms of the consumer issue, we don't actually pay the real price of food products. The part of our budget that is devoted to food is falling. It's now about 12% of our budget. It's really strange that processed food is now much cheaper than unprocessed products or fresh products. The price of these products do not take into account the damage on the environment. What we don't pay now, we pay it later in terms of, for example, healthcare. If you had in front of you right now the European Commissioner for Agriculture, Janusz Wojciechowski, what would you have to say to him? There are many synergies between uh, agriculture and biodiversity. Uh, we need a very strong commitment towards more agroecological practices. 
Thank you very much, Emmanuel Beguin from Natagora and Nicolas Dendonker from the University of Namur. My pleasure. You're most welcome. Fabienne Santini from the European Commission, thanks for being with us still. What will become of the goal to the transition to more sustainable agriculture? The real solution to this type of shock is more sustainable food systems in the EU. More sustainable means more resilience. And for this reason, these short-term measures should not deviate us from the long-term path, which is the solution. We have medium-term objectives in terms of climate and uh, biodiversity uh, that are in the European Green Deal documents and the farm-to-fork strategy, but also the biodiversity strategy. We know where we want to go within uh, 10 years. We know it's a complicated transition. If in this transition there's an accident, and uh, there's an accident, Russia decided to invade Ukraine, putting at stake global food security that we need to uh, take into account. And uh, for the Commission, it seemed more than necessary to increase the production as much as possible for this year uh, to help fill the gap. There is uh, no reason if the situation of the global food security is getting normalized that we have to deviate again from this transition pathway that we have to follow. Nicolas Dendonker, as we've just heard, proposes as a solution the adoption of new habits on the side of breeders and consumers – reducing the size of herds, moving towards a vegetarian diet, reducing food waste. What role can Brussels play in these aspirations? It's not Brussels that will say to a farmer, sorry, you don't grow maize for your cows, you grow wheat for making bread. We don't decide in Brussels that Mr. Dupont should not eat that many steaks and eat lentils instead. Brussels, the member states' role is to have a political framework which is inducive of behaviours of all these actors that are positive for environment. But these changes, they don't occur overnight because I snap my fingers. Thank you very much, Fabian Santini. You're welcome. Thank you. In Halle, if everyone else is aware that it'll take more than a click of a finger to address today's challenges, these demonstrators feel more urgency. Ukraine can be neither an excuse nor an opportunity. I'm never going to say it's an opportunity. Now, looking at exactly what is happening in the two types of agriculture, yes, that is important, and let us draw conclusions from it. The important thing is also to realise that our food security is not a given, but an everyday fight to find the right balance between respect for biodiversity and food for all. So, the next time you open your fridge, Spare a thought, perhaps, for all my guests who've made finding this balance their pet priority. Thanks for listening, and until two weeks and a new episode of Food for Europe. For me, Paul Anderson, and all the team, goodbye. Organic farming is steadily increasing. That's good. Pour parler d'agriculture et d'Europe à la jeunesse. The climate change affects ever wider parts of the world. Farmers help us bring nature back and preserve biodiversity. Ceux qui sont dans le rouge s'en sortent quand ils font plus vert. La qualité dans ce pays, elle doit être là pour tous. 